I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Our guest this week is Isabel Krishudian. She is a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post, currently based in Odessa, Ukraine. Her uh, her previous spot was uh, being part of the Moscow Bureau for the Washington Post, but then Russia's invasion of Ukraine obviously changed, uh, changed the equation for her, changed the equation for the world. And Isabel talked to us from Odessa, and it's really one of the most interesting or, you know, I don't know, maybe important. Sounds a little too self, self-important self by me, but it was a fascinating conversation with her. She discussed what her days are like, her safety level, whether anything can prepare a journalist to cover war, especially one that uh, had not covered one, what she thinks is sort of going to happen heading forward. She was a former Capitals reporter and writer for the Washington Post. So that's how I know her. I did a podcast with her on transitioning from sports to news. And uh, now part of her journey is covering uh, this war. We did talk about Alex Ovechkin and how she sees him. He is obviously someone who's been very linked and close to Vladimir Putin and now is, um, you know, in terms of being asked about this stuff, obviously it's called for peace and, and, um, there's a lot there with Ovechkin in terms of does he have responsibility, what his responsibility is, um, should he be more active in, in in calling this stuff out. So we get a little bit into that. And obviously we talk about just how she's doing emotionally, uh, mentally, and all that. So a really important 55 minutes with Isabel Krishudian of the Washington Post coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Isabella Kershudian is a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. She right now is based in Odessa, uh, Ukraine. She is a former sports writer who covered the Washington Capitals. She has been on this podcast before talking uh, about transitioning from sports to news. Um, and it's I think she's just led a really kind of fascinating journalism existence. I mean, she is not too far removed from covering the Washington Capitals in the Stanley Cup, and now she's in Odessa covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I am pleased to be joined by Odessa uh, by Isabella Krishudian. Isabella, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's say Isabella. I'm sorry, Isabel. My bad. Um, <laughs> well, we've never had a guest from <laughs> the other side of the world like this, and we've never had a guest who's in the middle of a um, a conflict region. So I, before we get into sort of what your day-to-day is like, uh, I think people would want to know, like, how are you doing emotionally? How are you doing mentally? How are you doing physically? Um, how has this la- this past month plus been for you? Yeah, it's weird. I think the concept of like a fog of war is real. I remember on the first day um, of the invasion of the war, whatever you want to call it, uh, both of those things, uh, I was in Kharkiv, which is eastern Ukraine, um, about 25 miles from the Russian border. And I woke up that morning at um, a little before, I think it was around 4 a.m. Um, because like, I had this horrible feeling. I think everybody in Ukraine really did, or at least people who had been following the news, that we knew like that was going to be the day on, the fe- on February 24th. Um, just based on kind of the rumblings and everything else. I think the Pentagon had given some news organizations like a warning. Um, And uh, so I woke up, I remember Putin had like a random speech around like four or 5 a.m. So it would have been 6 a.m., you know, Moscow time. Uh, And I listened to the whole speech and I was like, okay, here it goes. And as soon as he was done talking, I heard explosions out of my window Um, and 
so, I mean, the whole day was kind of a blur of like, okay, we have to, you know, we have to go out, we have to go do reporting, but also like what's going on. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously we were prepared for it and everybody around us wasn't um, as shocking as that sounds because, you know, we've been talking about this war for a while now, the possibility of it. Um, but Ukrainians, a lot of Ukrainians at least, uh, didn't believe in it. Um, but I remember that day in Kharkiv, you know, sometime in the afternoon, I was talking to Chico Harlan, who's also a former sports writer and now the Rome bureau chief. And, you know, he was just asking me some questions because he was about to go do reporting in Moldova. And he said something like, you know, the whole world just changed, your career changed. I mean, this is like a history changing moment. And, the, and uh, like, Honestly, I hadn't wrapped my mind around any of that to that point. Because um, when you're in it, um, and speaking of right now, I do hear like blasts outside a little bit um, from, I guess, the air defense shooting something down um, in Odessa. Because <laughs> uh, when you're in it, it's kind of, um, I don't know, you're just kind of taking one thing at a time and reacting to every little you know, event that happens. Um, so that first day in Kharkiv, it was just trying to, you know, see how people were feeling. These people who didn't believe that war was ever going to come to, you know, their homes. Um, now all of a sudden, you know, panic buying um, and, you know, hiding in metro, like underground metro stations and things of that sort. Um, and I had no idea what the story was going to be the next day. I mean, it was just... It's, it was such a fog in the moment of reacting to things. And then I feel like I'm still in that fog a little bit where I haven't totally processed everything. But all that being said, I feel pretty good emotionally um, because I think um, where I'm at in Odessa, this is my ancestral home. My parents are from here uh, and their parents are from here. Um, it's the city hasn't faced a major attack um, since the start of the war. And, you know, today I got a manicure, uh, <laughs> a nail salon was open. Uh, you know, you could see life here kind of somewhat resembling normal, um, but in a warlike state uh, where there are hedgehogs, uh, which are these like metal clusters, um, for anti-tank defense, uh, there are sandbag barricades, there's military, you know, everywhere. Um, but that's being said, like, this feels a lot more normal than other parts of Ukraine. Um, I eat at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I don't know, I think at some point, maybe when I leave here, like, it will all hit me. Um, just all of the destruction I've seen, I think I've become like sort of desensitized to it you know, seeing all these like broken, I remember, you know, the other day I was in Mikolaev and there was a, you know, air strike on a downtown hotel. Uh, and Mikolaev is a city also in Southern Ukraine, not too far from where I am now. Um, and so the apartment buildings behind the hotel sustained like quite a bit of damage as well. And people were just immediately outside, like cleaning their driveways, um, sweeping up all the broken glass. And um, you know, they were completely numb to it. Like nobody was crying. Nobody was freaking out. They were just sweeping up the glass. Like it was nothing. Um, and I think that's kind of how we all feel. Like we've gotten so desensitized to the fact that anywhere we are at any point, um, you know, could be hit with artillery or an airstrike or whatever. And as long as nobody dies, like it doesn't feel like that big of a deal anymore. Um, even though these are parts of people's homes that they were just you know, sweeping into a blanket and throwing away. Um, so I think that will all hit me later. But in the moment, you know, you try to keep some professional detachment um, while also, you know, empathizing with people and, you know, recognizing the horrible things they're going through. Um, so it's a weird feeling as a reporter. Um, I guess I don't really know how to describe it, but. Um, no, I think that that that. um I think you described it well. Um, and I can't relate to that because I've I've never covered war. The closest in your description that I can come to is just you're is covering um, the many Olympic games that I did, and you've thrown yourself into that region, and you become almost almost 
maybe numb is not the right word, but whatever's happening outside of that city at that time um, doesn't sort of feel real. And you're sort of in the middle of this, you know, three week bubble and, uh, and that's all you can focus on. Obviously the major difference is that's a celebration, generally speaking of sport. Um, what you are covering is something entirely different. Um, I did, I want to ask you, because I think my listeners will be interested in this. How does it work in terms of what you end up covering on a, uh, on a particular day? Do you, do you check in with your editors at the Washington Post or does the group that's covering, um, covering Ukraine sort of check in together and then, uh, parcel out what each person's going to do? Or are you even more on a, uh, almost on your own, your, your own individual news bureau in many ways where you just go out in Odessa and, and try to describe for people, uh, back in the United States, what's going on? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think we're one of the better staffed news organizations in Ukraine right now, where we've got a team in Lviv, which is Western Ukraine, a team in Kyiv, uh, which consists of two journalists, a photographer and um, several fixers, uh, and also like a video journalist, a team in Eastern Ukraine, um, and, you know, my team, which is in the South. Um, and so we've got like pretty much every like sector of Ukraine covered. Um, and, you know, we have like our own group chat <laughs> where, you know, we discuss somewhat like what we're doing, but I think, you know, the places that face, um, you know, kind of daily bombardment, um, they more so react to breaking news or the day's events. Um, I would say me and so I'm in a position where I can easily get to the front line because uh, that's Mikolaev, which is about two hours away from me. So that's an easy day trip in my case. Uh, you know, so I would say me and the Western Ukrainian team, uh, sometimes we have like future stories planned and we're kind of going with that. And then sometimes we might kind of ad lib it based, based on breaking news. Um, so, you know, I've had a few trips where, you know, I heard of a military garrison uh, or a barracks that was, you know, bombed in Mikolaev. Uh, so immediately I'm texting with sources there, you know, a fixer there. Um I guess for your listeners, a fixer is a local who uh, kind of knows the lay of the land and will work with us and we will pay him or her to help us with contacts there. Um, And, you know, we're kind of reacting to that and going there then to cover the news. Um, But, you know, I guess it it just really depends. When I was in Kharkiv, um, we were under constant bombardment uh there were some curfew uh restrictions where i I remember one day where they were just like nobody go outside of your bomb shelter um and harkiv is a city that's been you know since we left has gotten it's pretty much unrecognizable the amount of like shelling and artillery fire that city has taken which is pretty horrible because it was a really um beautiful place uh before then um so that made reporting like pretty difficult, like how far you could get out. Like if you could get to affected areas, it seems like the reporters in Kiev have been able to get to, uh, you know, sites of strikes, uh, pretty soon, you know, after, uh, any hits have happened. Um, so, you know, I think for me, my day to day is, um, working on bigger picture stories, stories that can be anchored out of Odessa, out of the South, that maybe, you know, speak to kind of the larger situation in Ukraine, since Odessa isn't a place itself that has um, really taken a lot of uh, attacks from Russia to this point, uh, but is, you know, an incredibly important city. It's the largest Black Sea port here. Um, it's one of the largest Black Sea ports, you know, period. Um, it is a city that is majority Russian speaking. It was probably pretty Russian sympathetic, um, definitely before 2014. Uh, but it was somewhere probably in like the 60, 40, 40, 60 range, um, before this war. Uh, and, you know, it's a city that Russians really identify with. Um, this is, you know, this was a city founded by Catherine the Great. Um, so it's strategically important to the Russians. There are Russian warships off the coast here. 
but they haven't been able to attack yet because of, you know, their forces getting held up in Mikolaev. And so a lot of my job is kind of waiting, um, waiting for the Russians to unfortunately come to me, which is a weird thing to say, but um, I'm sort of kind of stationed here working on other things. And every day is kind of a question of like, is this the day they attack the city or is it not? This may be a very uh, uh, layperson question, but I mean, it is not, it may be. When you go out uh, reporting either locally in Odessa or when you travel to one of these other cities, do you have to wear a bulletproof vest? Are you, um, do you have any kind of, I'm going to just ask, like, is there any kind of weaponry that you have? Like, uh, do you have something that identifies you very visibly as press? Like, how does it work when you, when you, when you, when you leave what is at least a relatively safer place in Odessa and then head out? Yeah. So we all have bulletproof vests. Um, we have an extra bulletproof vest for whoever our fixer is. Um, I've been driving us, uh, I have like the advantage here as being a Russian speaker. I don't speak Ukrainian, unfortunately, um, even though my parents are from Ukraine, but uh, they left it during the Soviet Union. Uh, so they only know Russian. Um, and so we have a, like a extra bulletproof vest for whoever. I, when I'm reporting around the city in Odessa, uh, my security people will hate me saying this, but um, I don't usually wear my bulletproof vest and sometimes I don't even take it with me. Um, but uh, if we go to Mikolaev or if we take any like long trip, we definitely have it with us and we wear it like on the drive. D the roads here tend to be a little dicey. Um, we've gotten more comfortable with them, but I remember our drive from Kharkiv to Dnipro was very sketchy where like at one point we were surrounded at gunpoint by Ukrainians um, who were just very suspicious of us in that moment. And we had to talk ourselves out of it. Um, so you definitely wear your flag jacket on the road. And when you're in an area that is closer to the front, you for sure wear it. So when I'm in Mikolaev, I pretty much wear it all the time. Um, just reporting around downtown Odessa, I don't wear it, but I usually have it in the car at the very least. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have it, we have, um, you know, a kind of a security company that works with us. Um, so you asked if I like talk to my editor, sometimes I do, um, there, it, 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 when it's stories that you're planning out in advance, like you definitely consult with your editors about what you're doing. Uh, but sometimes you make judgment calls in the moment and you clear it with, you know, your security team. Uh, we have a separate group chat for that. And our security team is based in London. There's someone on like 24 uh, seven. They track our locations um, through uh, like one app. And then we also turn on like a backup tracker and we're checking in with them constantly. I mean, they're always asking like, okay, are you all back at the hotel? What are you doing today? Da, da, da. Um, so that gives you like a level of reassurance. Um, I would say our team in Kiev, they have a security person with them. Um, and that's more normal, I think, for a lot of bigger, you know, other organizations. I know CNN, New York Times, they tend, their teams tend to have security personnel with them all of the time. Um, for us, that's been a rare situation. But this war... I think is unique from even other conflicts that any news organization has covered. We found it's even more dangerous. We've seen, what is it? Five or six, maybe even seven journalists. Um, I mean, there's some missing, so it's unclear, but um, a lot of journalists have already been killed, uh, which is horrible. Um, so you try to take precautions while doing your job. Um, but this is something that is different from, I mean, I came into this with no real conflict zone experience, and I've talked to reporters who have a lot of conflict zone experience from the Middle East, and you know they've said this is much, much different from things they've covered. Um, just with the level of like weaponry that you're dealing with, um, airstrikes, you know, cluster munitions, things of that sort. It's so unpredictable what they're targeting. Um, if I thought there were rules at the beginning of this, which were that, you know, in Russian speaking cities, you know, someplace like Kharkiv um, in eastern Ukraine, that was, I would say, 95 percent Russian speaking. Um, I was like, oh, they're not going to 
they're not going to indiscriminately fire on civilians there because that will kill the entire Russian narrative that they're trying to protect Russian speakers in Ukraine. That's clearly been proven wrong um, because they have fired indiscriminately in civilian areas there. Uh, they've targeted hospitals, schools. So the rules here are completely thrown out the window. You don't know what will be hit at any given moment, what areas are safe or untouchable and what areas are not. I mean, we were in downtown McLeod and a hotel, you know, five minutes from us got hit uh, with an airstrike. Uh, it's one thing when it's artillery fire and you can somewhat, I guess, hear it. Um, you can hear when it gets close, things of that sort and sort of react to that. But when it's an airstrike, you have no warning whatsoever, typically. Um, and so before that, my colleagues, I mean, a lot of people have been staying in McAlive. Fortunately, that hotel was empty. Um, but now, you know, when my colleagues and I make a decision of should we stay overnight there, that's in the back of your mind that they hit a hotel. Like, is it safe to stay in a hotel there? I think one of the things, um, and obviously you've, um, I imagine you at least have access uh, when you get back to wherever you're staying to um, to the web, and you can read the Washington Post, or you know maybe you have an access to uh, um, American uh, news organizations here, you know CNNs, et cetera. Um, one of the things that um, if you when you're reading about all this, it, since the um, first blast, which you mentioned is about a month ago, it's sort of the resiliency of the country and the resiliency of the Ukrainians, um, you're there. And obviously you have a, as you mentioned, a connection, this is your sort of ancestral, ancestral home that you're in in Odessa. Um, should, should people have known that the Ukrainians were going to be this resilient or is this something even for you, someone who I would consider an expert on this, has that been surprising? Cause it, you know, on top of obviously the, what Putin has done in the invasion. I mean, that's really the story of the last month is just these incredibly brave people have made a decision that, um, that Russia is not going to take their country. I think I definitely expected a significant insurgency. Um, uh, that being said, I also thought the country, like I thought they could get to Kiev and, you know, accomplish their goals within a week or something. I definitely thought like the Russian military was going to be better prepared <laughs> and, be and had a better plan and would um, pretty much roll over the Ukrainians. Uh, and clearly that's been wrong because we're in stalemate status now. They're not making gains around Kiev, which was their main goal going into this was to take the capital and sort of force a regime change. Um, in the South, it's the opposite. They're losing ground. Um, so Mikolaev's, you know, the military in, Mik in Mikolaev is pushing them back further into kind of back towards Crimea and Kherson. Um, so I think I expected an insurgency for sure and a significant Ukrainian resistance. Um, I don't think I expected to this degree where... Um, I mean, you hear of like such amazing things that people are doing. Um, you know, one of the people I've met here in Odessa is a woman who, um, you know, in 2016, she joined the military. Um, her name is Veronica. She joined the military and, you know, was deployed out east. And in 2020, uh, she fell in a grenade, uh, which saved her. Um, you know, comrades, and she nearly lost her leg. And now she walks with, you know, a significant limp um, and has a lot of, you know, injuries. Um, and, you know, rather than go anywhere as a result of this, right now she's teaching civilian defense classes. Like she's teaching war tactics and everything else. She's trying to still help this war effort. Um, you know, I met a guy at the front line in Mikolaev who's literally in one of the trenches and, you know, he was discharged because um, of uh, injury from, you know, when he served and he still came back. I mean, the amount of people that you meet who came back into the country is pretty crazy. I mean, one of the guys in Mikolaev I met, um, he was in Poland a couple of days before the war started and uh, guys that he had served with texted him like, hey, we think it's starting like we're seeing like a lot of action around, you know, the eastern control line already. 
And he literally got back into the country in time to serve. Um, so I think people underestimated that fact that, you know, farmers, grandmothers, uh, <laughs> you know, women, uh, the, all sorts of people would just mobilize in this kind of way. Um, you see, you know, every other person, when you go through these military checkpoints, like give people who are serving at the, like even the checkpoints, uh, you know, some borscht and some pickles, um, you know, one guy I met at like a frontline position in Mikolaev said that um, he used to eat two meals a day and now there's so much food from volunteers that he's eating five meals a day. Um, so I think people underestimate the degree of it, but um, me included for sure. But I, I do think I expected an insurgency um, and I did not think the Ukrainian military would be able to um, hold on for this long. Um, and they're not just holding on, they're doing pretty well in some places. Um, my fear is that Russia is, has already lost too much and spent too much um, to not get what they want out of this, um, whatever that is. Uh, I think that's a Russia-friendly government in Ukraine that would give them de facto control. Um, so I guess the, the larger concern is that um, they will spend even more firepower, they will bring in even more forces, um, and they will double down in a degree that will cause so much more casualties. Um, and I think that's like the main concern I've had all along is that the better Ukraine resists, the worse the worst it will get for just normal people who are still in this country, um, which is horrifying because obviously you don't, there's nobody telling Ukraine, like, don't resist, don't fight back. Um, I don't think like anyone should say that. Um, but that's just a reality is like the better you defend yourselves, um, the worse it will ultimately get potentially. I want to ask you about your, um, your, your previous world, which must really feel like a million years ago when you covered um, when you covered sports, uh, and obviously covered, uh, I think for the purposes of this podcast, if people know your work, they know you from covering the NHL and the Capitals. Um, do you, do you ever reflect on that time when you're doing the reporting that you're doing now? And I guess even sort of within that sort of thought process is, are there things you learned in sports reporting that have helped you um, since you started covering this war? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I interviewed to be a foreign correspondent, they asked me, like, um, do you think you'd be able to, like, you know, embed in military environments um, and relate to, like, guys like that? And I'm like, I have to imagine it's very similar to a locker room, which I have a lot of experience with. Uh, <laughs> and I think to a degree that's helped. Like, I feel comfortable. I've done several, like, embeds with the Ukrainian military here. Um, and part of what helps me is a like the ability to speak the language, but b that I have no problem like dropping curse words and laughing at their like inappropriate jokes about each other's mothers, um, <laughs> because I'm very used to that from sports locker rooms. Um, I think wartime maybe it's the ability to file fast. You know, everybody says that about sports writers is you know you're on deadline and. Uh, there's a lot of pressure and not the same kind of pressure as being in a war, but um, just pressure of the moment and you have to file a story immediately and there's a lot going on. And uh, I think I've learned that from it is just blocking everything out and being able to file a story that um, is comprehensible, even in a very short amount of time. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think I mean, I've always said that my sports writing training was a good thing for um, foreign, especially since, um, I mean, when I got onto the hockey beat, I didn't know anything about uh, covering hockey. I'd never watched hockey. And I was able to adapt to the situation as it happened and, you know, learn kind of on the fly. Uh, with this, you know, I've never covered a war before, um, but again, you know, you, I was able to react to it. Um, I, it's very different, but there are some similarities, just being able to um, kind of learn, you know, from other people around you, but also 
just from the experience. Um, so I don't know. I guess so. I, I, I don't think that's a great answer, but. Um, no, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, I think, I mean, that's an honest answer and, and I, and I appreciate that. I want to, I want to ask you about one sports person because this is, there's very few people in the world. I feel like who would have sort of as interesting insight as you would. Um, Alex Ovechkin, who you covered, obviously one of the great NHL players of all time, on his way, most likely, unless something happens injury-wise, to break Wayne Gretzky's goal-scoring record, um, has been aligned with Putin, at least promotionally, for um, for some time. Uh, he, he actively, not really, I mean, given the Russian sort of elections, but campaigned for him when, when, when in Putin's last re-election campaign. There's certainly photos of... Alex Ovechkin, um, you know, with Putin um, all over the place. Um, and at the same time, he he did address the invasion of Ukraine. I think uh, I'll make sure I'm specific here. Called it a hard situation, said he has friends both in Russia and Ukraine, did say that, the, uh, that he hoped the conflict uh, would end, wanted peace. I'm wondering how you see uh, him, Isabel, just sort of in terms of this, because there's probably not. I shouldn't say there's probably because this is fact. There is no North American playing athlete more aligned with Vladimir Putin than Alex Ovechkin for obvious reasons, which I sort of just stated a little bit of. At the same time, he is an athlete. He's not a politician at the moment. And so how I don't know. How do you look at him and how do you think sort of uh, American sports fans should look at him as he's continuing to play in the in the NHL? Yeah, so I knew I would get this question here because you're a good journalist and like if I were you, I would ask this. Um, and I have like avoided like saying anything about this really to this point. Um, so, I mean, I when he talked about this in that one um, kind of press conference, I don't think he really like came out against Russia at all, even though he said like stop the war. Um, like in no way, I think he was just like saying whatever he felt like he should say. Um, I don't know. I guess I would say if you're a sports fan, um, and to be clear, I'm completely, I've done zero reporting, zero inquiry into like, I haven't, you know, talked to anyone from the capitals, talked to anyone like from Ovechkin's side. I don't know what he actually thinks about this. And I don't know what he's told the capitals or what the capitals think about this. So I'm completely speaking from like my very previous, um, context and also my understanding of like what Russian, what the Russian atmosphere is like right now. Um, so, you know, I think if you're a sports fan, it's totally fair to say that like, you know, I don't really care what Alex Ovechkin's views are um, on Putin or Russia. I just really like him as a hockey fan. And I think it's also fair to say, um, especially if you're a sports fan in Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, that like I have a big problem with this because his Instagram picture is still him and Putin together. Um, and, you know, I don't think um, Alex is going to come like is ever going to take a stance against Putin. And what I have a problem with is when people say, um I guess when people make him a victim of this too, because I don't really believe he's a victim. And I don't think that's like a fair characterization, especially if you're, you know, describing victims in this whole situation, it's not um, someone who I would consider to be like a member of Russia's elite. Um, it would be like Ukrainian people who are fleeing their homes and literally dying. Um, so like, I don't, there are a lot of influential Russian people, um, late night hosts, um, pop culture figures, you know, the most pa popular rapper in Russia, um, people who literally work for state television, um, who have taken a stand against this and at great risk the, to themselves because they understand that um, this war is pretty senseless. Um, I think for Ovechkin, it would be incredibly uncomfortable to do so um, because, you know, he does have family there because his social circle with uh, he and his wife hang out in like a social circle with people who probably um, think that there's a lot, you know, who have bought into the Russian propaganda that there is a justification for this war, that the Ukrainians are neo-Nazis, that, you know, the 
Russian speakers are being oppressed in Ukraine. And all of that is false. Um, we know that. Uh, but, you know, that is what is being sold on Russian television. Um, and I just think for Ovechkin, it is, uh, he, there would be business losses um, if he stood up against this. Uh, he might have to take his family out of there. And those are things he might just not want to do. Um, but, and uh, I guess I understand that. I don't know if it's fair or right to have him be accountable for this, but other people have, um, other people have taken a stand. Um, they have not been killed. Um, their families have not been killed, um, but they have had to leave the country. And um, so I guess my thing is, I, I don't like the narrative that he is like another victim of this because I don't think that's true. I think he could take a stand and he has a very powerful voice in Russia where there are a lot of people who live there um, who are being fed one story from, you know, state media and he could break through that uh, and kind of speak truth to Russians. Uh, but to a degree he's choosing not to. I want to ask you, um, another sports related question, um, and sort of how you view it. I've been, um, I've been pleasantly surprised by the, the, how do I phrase this? Sort of like, let's just sort of call it the global sports universe, how the global sports universe has made decisions to let Russia know that what they've done is unacceptable. So from, um, banning Russia from the World Cup to um, to some of the KHL teams that are not based in Russia, I think I'm correct on this, pulling out to uh, when it comes to like uh, world championship-like events, um, saying Russia is not um, allowed to go. And while I certainly feel for the athletes, and I think in many cases these athletes are just um, their collateral damage unfairly, I think there's a larger thing at stake here and that like that stuff has meaning. If nothing else, it has to get through to the Russian people, even if state media is sort of claiming it's the West's fault. Like at a base level, you know, if you if you see Russia's not in the World Cup, like if you're Russian, you know Russia's not in the World Cup. And so I I, I don't know. I, I guess I've been surprised because I Isabel have no faith in the IOC. I think they're among the worst organizations in the world, let alone sports organizations. You know, I generally have very little faith in FIFA. I generally have very, very little faith in almost any global sports organization. But in this case, it feels like they've, I don't know, they've sort of, they've stepped up and, and, and done the right thing. I wonder how, how you see it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, uh, you know, the Kremlin will spin this as, oh, the West, it's just Russia phobia. The West is against us. Da, da, da. And to be clear, like, I'm against xenophobia, against normal Russians, right? Like, I don't think Russian players in the NHL should face like any kind of blowback, you know, uh, none at all. Like, this is not for a lot of like, normal Russians, this was not their war, right? They did not. I mean, all of my Russian friends in Moscow, to which I had a lot. Um, and I don't know if I will ever get back there. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have an apartment full of sh things there. Um, but, you know, I, a lot of my Russian friends, I remember when I left, um Russia in late January to go to Ukraine and I said I'm going you know to potentially cover a war they laughed at me they did not believe it was going to happen they were not prepared for it and um they were completely like what's going on in Ukraine we don't get it uh because there were really for the Russian public there were no warning signs in any of Russian media um people laughed like laughed it off as western hysteria uh, and like, that was actually something they had in common with Ukrainians, oddly enough. So, um, you know, I, I would say the majority of my Russian friend group in Moscow, um, does not support this whatsoever. And they're now dealing with the consequences of it. However, um, while I understand my Russian friends who say, why do I have to suffer economically? Why do I have to deal with this burden of sanctions? Um, you know, all these private businesses are pulling out and it's the same on the sports level. Um, the reason is because, um, those things have an impact 
you know, on the regime. The goal is to get, you know, normal Russians so angry that they stand up against, uh, you know, Putin's kind of crew, his inner circle, his government. Um, and I, you know, even if I did get back to Russia at this point, um, and, you know, moved back into my apartment in Moscow, my life would be totally different there. Half my friends have left. Um, and it's young people. And, you know, that matters that cripples Russia's future. Um, there are there have been protests there. Um, and so it's the same with sports, right? Like sports is incredibly important to Vladimir Putin. Um, he is obsessed with judo. The judo association kicked him out. I think, um, he goes to every Olympics. Um, all of these things matter a lot to him. So they matter when, um, you know, the world says, no, like you can't be a part of this anymore. And there is a, a level of isolation. Um, you know, it, Russia wants to be seen as this great power, right? They want to feel important, even though, you know, economically and like their level of kind of, um, if you look at just like economic standards, like they're not on the level of like the United States or China or whatever. Um, you know, they like to, you know, punch above that and make themselves important. Um, so when, you know, the world kind of excludes them, that hits hard for them. Uh, so I do think that matters because we've seen how important sports are to where, I mean, it was like clearly a government order for them to cheat and to have all of that sports doping um, that got them in trouble, you know, in the Olympics to begin with, um, that they were so competitive with it that, you know, they had to cheat to kind of get ahead that came from like government pressure of this wanting to be kind of first wanting to be in at the top. Um, so yeah, I do think that matters. There's a level of prestige with Russia that when you do kind of isolate them, when private businesses pull out, um, you know, now there's talk of like excluding Russia from the G20, for example. Um, I, I think that matters a lot. And I think a lot of Russians are horrified by that. And will and either if because there's the repressions are so horrible, um, if they can't protest safely, they will just leave the country. And even that fact um, will significantly cripple Russia because um, the brain drain fact is real. It was real before the war, but now it's going to exacerbate. You know, I want to just add, you just mentioned this, and it's kind of like um, I can't even imagine it. But so. You, you, there's you 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 were a Moscow-based correspondent. You obviously at a certain point had to leave. When you left, did you know like you may never see that apartment again? And like, what do you do? Do you just take as much as you can take, like on a plane? And do you have any clue as to like what's going on in like that apartment that you had? Like that's you know what I'm saying. Like I try to put myself in the situation if I had to leave my home um, to go cover something or to do something, and I may never go back to that home again. What's 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 that like? Yeah, so it's weird because I don't know what I was thinking, but when I left on January 23rd, so I've been here over two months, um, when I left on January 23rd, I definitely like said goodbye to my friends. And I was like, oh, I'll be back in like a month and a half, two months, whatever. Um, I think I thought I was going to go cover a war uh, and I would come back, you know, after the fact and my life would be exactly as it was. And I don't know why I thought that, um, but like when I've talked to my other, you know, foreign correspondent colleagues are like, that is usually how it goes. <laughs> but, uh, the ripple effects of this have been so incredibly vast uh, that I now, um, okay, there's a lot of things at play, which is that while I was in Ukraine, my Russian visa expired. Um, so I would have to like get it renewed a to go back. Um, I do still have my apartment. I paid rent a couple days ago. Um, so like we're committed to keeping my apartment for the time being in the hopes that eventually I will be able to get back there. Um, I don't think this is a big secret, but maybe I'm revealing something. I don't know. The Washington Post currently does not have um, any reporters or full-time staff rather um, in Russia. Um same with the New York Times and other news organizations, but we have had to leave uh, because, you know, even there's a law there about, I don't know even what it's called, but if you 
if you call, you know, a war, war, um, you're facing potentially, I don't know, 15 years in jail or something ridiculous like that. Um, they want to call it a special operation. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to be able to get back to my apartment. Uh, my things are still there. I did not take all of my things, all of my valuables or anything like that. I definitely thought I was going to be able to get back. Um, I thought I might like be in Ukraine still when my visa lapsed, but I was like, Oh, it's no big deal. I'll just go through a third country on my way back get a 30 day. No problem. <laughs> um, my accreditation goes through 2023. So it's no problem. Um, and now, I mean, just the whole world has changed, right? Russia is more isolated than it's been since um, really, you know, the cold war, right. That, there's no, there's very few Western businesses left there. Um, no Apple pay, um, no Twitter, no Instagram. I mean, a lot of my friends are still using VPN. So they still hit me up on Instagram, but like, it's, it's completely insane. I mean, I've just had friends that, you know, I spent, I, I remember I had 25 people at my new year's Eve party in Moscow. Um, and I don't, at least half of them have left the country since then. Um, they've just, you know, left like on a dime because they're like, the economy is going to go to shit here. And, um, I mean, the ruble has like doubled, uh, it's just, it's a complete mess there. Um, but also they were completely cut off guard by this war and hate it. Uh, so I don't know. I, I have no idea when I will be able to get back to my apartment. I think the Washington post hope is that we will be able to get back there sooner than later. And we're not closing our bureau by any means. Um, but at, as of this moment, we would not be doing good journalism uh, if we had to comply by whatever these Kremlin rules are, you know, for covering the war. Um, you know, obviously we're going to call it a war. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't make sense to stay in at the moment and also keep our people safe. So. Yeah, I, I think the hope is we'll be able to get back, but um, and I will keep paying rent in my apartment until then. Um, but at the moment, I, I have no concept of it. And I think that's what really hit me is that, you know, I think I was doing fine as far as my mental state uh, in this war, as odd as, as odd as it sounds, because I was seeing a lot of horrible things. Um, but when I realized, like, I had nowhere to go back to, um, that my whole life, usually when you leave a place, even if you're expelled from a country, like you have a, at least a few moments or like a day to say goodbye to people, to pack up your, like some of your things, all of that. Um, in my case, you know, I, I wasn't prepared for it at all. I didn't say goodbye to anyone. Um, and just the concept of like my whole life just went up in flames, um, not to the degree of anything that the Ukrainians are dealing with, but um, I don't know where to go after this. Um, I have like one duffel bag with me right now. I've worn the same three outfits, like, you know, every week it's pretty horrible. Um, and yeah, I just, I don't know when I'm going to see all of these people who like, I really bonded to for two years, um, ever again. A couple more things and then I'm gonna let you go. And again, I appreciate your, uh, I appreciate your time and your honesty on all this. Um, has the Washington Post told you and or your colleagues who are in the Ukraine, like, like, is there an expectation of when your individual assignment might be done or, and maybe this is more realistic, like for mental health purposes, we want you to, I'm sort of just making this up spitballing. We want you to go uh, somewhere for two weeks just to refresh, recharge, and then we'll send you back to Ukraine. Like how would that, how would that work or how do you think that will work given the reality is that, you know, as you mentioned, there's a sort of a stalemate here. So nobody really knows how long this is going to continue. Yeah. So I am about to see through um, like a whole second set of reporters. I'm sorry, a third set, <laughs> a second set of reporters leave and a third set come in, um, which is to say that, like, I have been given multiple times. My bosses are very nice to me. They've given me multiple options to leave. And I keep saying that I want to stay. Um, but other people are rotating in and out. Um, I feel like where I'm at in Odessa, it doesn't feel, um, 
maybe I'm just used to as like a foreign correspondent who at the moment has nowhere to go. Um, maybe I'm just used to kind of, you know, working in an environment like this, or maybe it's like the sports writing background where like living in a hotel for weeks and weeks and weeks is not that weird. Um, but uh, you know, I, I feel good. Like I still feel fresh. Um, and I don't want to leave. Uh, I think if I took a break right now, I would, um, drive myself pretty insane being away from the story. Um, and I know like I have, um, like my colleague Siobhan O'Grady, who's in Kiev right now and is our Cairo bureau chief. I mean, she like really, really was against leaving. Um, but you know, I think they're pretty insistent of rotating people in and out. I, I'm sure at some point they will tell me like, I have no choice in the matter and it's time for me to go. Uh, but for now I'm very, very committed to staying. Um, and I, I think I would feel differently if I, if I was under, if I was in a place that was under like consistent um, shelling uh, and kind of constantly living with that. But it's weird. Like I felt the most anxiety before the war, just this horrible weight. I remember like February 23rd, I was shaking before I went to sleep. Um, I have like panicked. I was just so scared of this unknown. I think a lot of Ukrainians felt that way because it seemed like it was going to start the next morning. And like I had the tremors of this fear of what's going to come. What is it going to be like? You know, are we going to get bombed? Da, da, da. Um, and then once it happened, it, it wasn't relief, but it was just kind of like the weight, the anxiety of waiting was over and you were able to just more naturally, I think, react to, you know, the events happening around you. Um, and that felt a lot more normal than just like, you know, oh, it could be tomorrow morning or I just like there was a week where I couldn't sleep because I kept waking up every two hours to check, like, has the invasion happened yet? <laughs> um and now, like, I sleep pretty soundly through the night, as weird as that sounds. Um, so, I don't know. For me, personally, I don't want to leave the story. I don't want to take a break. Um, but they are being pretty insistent on that um, with everyone else. Uh, you know, photographers, video journalists, um, everybody's rotating in. They're bringing in fresh people. My fellow exports writer, Robert Klemko, is coming in soon. Um uh, and I think he's on his way here now. Um, so everybody, there are rotations of like about a month, maybe a little bit more than a month. Um, but you know, it, this could go on for months. Um, if not, and I think like the aftermath of this will go on for years, um, where, you know, what if like Ukraine's government makes concessions and there's insurgency to that, or, um, you know, a protest movement or, I mean, the other thing is like Ukraine has completely militarized its entire society, right? Everybody here has a gun now. Everybody here has trained how to have a gun. They're military. It's, you know, Putin claimed demilitarization was like one of his goals of this country or like of this invasion rather. Um, I've never seen a society so militarized. I've seen grandmothers, you know, women with like fake nails and like, you know, full makeup, like, um, you know, training how to like shoot guns, um, and they probably never held them before. Um, and I, I don't know how you unwind all of that, like in the aftermath. I mean, you've got like a whole rebuilding effort that will have to happen in some of these cities. Um, you know, that have been completely leveled. You know, there's going to be. I mean, we have no real concept of what like the death toll is right now because so many humanitarian organizations have not been able to get in because of how much shelling there's been. Um, so the aftermath uh, will almost be, I think years and years after the fact. Um, so this is a very long-term thing. I don't think anybody expected the war itself to last this long. Uh, but now the thought is this could last for a very long time. Hey, um, all right. Two, two more questions for you. Are you able at all to, um, to, uh, do something that sort of just takes your mind off this, even at, I know the time difference is, is what it is, but like, have you, are you able to stay current with us sports 
Like, have you watched, like, as simply as, have you checked out a Capitals game, like, in the last month and a half? And uh, and if you have, is that something that, I don't know, if nothing else maybe makes you a little more connected to the United States or makes you sort of connected a little bit to our world here? I have not. You know, honestly, when I lived in um, Moscow, even just, like, on a day-to-day, like, totally calm, non-wartime, um, I wasn't um, at all paying attention to... Um, oh, I was paying attention to the Caps, but I wasn't watching their games. Um, you know, I'm, I've become a Brighton sports fan, uh, English Premier oh, League. All right, nice. Um, yeah, yeah. I, but I've like been pretty disconnected from that too. Um, I think my colleague Whitney Leeming, uh, who's a video journalist at the Post, she and I like every now and again. So booze is uh, banned at the moment, uh, but you can get it through contraband means. <laughs> Martial law is like sobriety apparently. <laughs> so, but you can still get it. I mean, people kind of sell it off the books. Um, so sometimes, like, we'll be in her or my hotel room over a glass of wine or two or three, and. Um, you know, like, we'll have to look at each other. It's like, we have to put down our phones. Like, we can't keep doing these doom scrolls. Uh, because we're, all, like, both subscribed to so many, like, Ukrainian news telegram channels. And we're both like, oh, is that outgoing artillery? Or is that incoming artillery <laughs> that we hear outside? Or, oh, um, is that air raid serious? Or is it not serious? Like, uh, oh, did Mikolaev get hit here or there? And so I think it's hard to disconnect from the news because you're trying to figure out um, what should we do tomorrow. Um, and we, so we're just, uh, you know, sometimes I'll watch like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I guess it's my like disconnect. But um, no, I mean, it's it's pretty all-encompassing. I will say one thing. Um, you asked me earlier what sports prepared me for. It is for covering one story for a very long period of time. Um, I think that is why I am definitely able to stay in and tell my editors over and over that I've, I want to stay for at least another month or at least another two months or whatever is because I'm used to working nonstop for eight months at a time, uh, you know, kind of focusing on one subject every day and um, then taking like, you know, two months off. Um, and I think that's the kind of mode I'm in now where I would rather just keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, and then after I will just crash and completely disconnect. But right now I'm still very into this. And I think if I have to separate, um, I'll be pretty regretful. My last uh, question for you is, and again, I realize this, you know, there are people who spend their entire lives, uh, studying Russia, um, and Putin and his decision making, uh, not only like in our world, but like literally in the intelligence agencies, these are what these people are, are trained to do. Um, where, where does your, I don't know, where does your faith level stand in, in, in this eventually ending? Um, you know, there's been so many pieces written about like, what is Putin's end game? What is Putin's end game? I've probably read a million of those. Uh, pieces but I also think you sort of said something here that was kind of interesting that like you know there's um, the idea he, he's not really ever been a leader in terms of saving face like the 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 standoff doesn't seem to be wouldn't indicate to me that somehow it means a pullback from the Russians and they'll you know they'll go to the peace table and 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 figure out an equitable way and pull their troops out it feels like the opposite will happen obviously if you care about humanity you don't want that to happen but I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in this and I've read as much as I can, but even after everything I've read, I don't think I have any better sense as to what Vladimir Putin is thinking or, or, uh, or maybe, or maybe doing heading forward. How do you see it? So, you know, I think, um, he has a few exit ramps, right. In the sense that he announced this as, a special operation in the Donbass, right? And the Donbass is like one specific Eastern Ukrainian region. Um, and, uh, you know, he hasn't, like, obviously the fighting has not been contained to that one specific Eastern Ukrainian region when, you know, they're targeting uh, Kiev and, you know, Northern Ukraine and everything else. Um, so, you know, I, I think like if they just capture Mariupol, which it looks like they could do any day now, I mean, they have that place, unfortunately, pretty surrounded. Um, then I don't know, like, 
maybe they say that's a win for them, right? That they got the entire Donbass for the separatist areas that they have now declared independent. I guess that's one exit ramp for him. Uh, but I think the larger goal is to um, create an environment where Ukraine has to accept some um, political concessions in these peace talks uh, that are incredibly unfavorable to them, including, you know, swearing off NATO membership. And to be clear, like, I don't think Ukraine is anywhere close to getting into NATO. Um, and Zelensky has said as much, um, or, you know, or, you know, saying we'll never be part of the EU either. Um, you know, they've talked about denazification, demilitarization. I mean, what is that? What does denazification even mean? Um, like, I, I don't know. I, this is not a country of Nazis. The president is uh, ethnically Jewish. Uh, uh, you, you know, there's some right wing elements in uh, as far as like militias and in the military, but it is very, very, very minor. Um, and so and it is completely blown out of proportion by Russian and Kremlin propaganda. Um, so, you know, I think, like I said, they have some exit ramps, but I think um, what the goal ultimately is, is to install a government, um, a regime change in Kyiv that is going to be so pro-Russian, so favorable to, you know, Putin and the Kremlin, that it gives Russia de facto control over Ukraine, even if like Russia is not actively occupying, because there's no way for Russia to occupy all of Ukraine. Like that is literally impossible, as we've seen, right? Like even the places that were seemingly more Russia friendly before the war started, which I would say would be Eastern and Southern Ukraine, are in violent, violent opposition right now. Odessa, as I've said, which like maybe you would have thought like some of these people were more pro-Russian leaning or at least like didn't have any animosity towards Russia before the war. Um, it is swung completely in the opposite direction. If Putin's accomplished anything to this point is completely uniting Ukrainians against him. Um, so, you know, I think that aspect of it is like, they can't occupy Ukraine. There's no way, um, not the entire country. I don't even think they could occupy half of it. Um, so their only way to de facto occupy it is to put in like basically a regime that, um, is going to do whatever they want. And that's what they had before 2014. Um, and that's where this whole like animosity between Ukraine and Russia started, right? Is that there was a revolution here. They kicked out the like pro-Russian government and Russia has not forgotten it since. Um, so they're going to put in, I think they want to put in someone like that. Um, I don't think Ukrainians will accept that. Um, I don't even think if Zelensky made some concessions, I think Ukrainians could accept, you know, if he conceded, we're not going to NATO, but I don't think they could accept the EU part of it. I think e like European Union membership is more important than most Ukrainians and even NATO membership. Um, I, I think Ukrainians could accept, you know, telling Russia that, okay, we're giving up Crimea, Crimea is yours, whatever, because Crimea has been de facto Russia for eight years now. Um, but I don't think Ukrainians are ready to cede all of the Donbass, which includes Mariupol and territories that um, have been under Ukrainian control this entire time during this conflict for, you know, eight years prior to this. Um, that's a lot of area. And that's a lot of people that you're just basically saying, okay, we give up on you. Um, so there's a lot of these aspects of it in peace talks that let's say even Zelensky's government agrees to it. It will cause incredible destabilization in the in the country uh, where Ukrainians who currently believe that their military is doing pretty good and actually could win this thing uh, will stand up against their own government or will be angry with it. And that will create the kind of destabilization that the Kremlin wants. I think that's part of it. Um, so there's a lot of nuance here, but I do think re regime change, government change, getting Zelensky out of there and installing someone else, that's the ultimate goal um, because it gives Russia more kind of influence over the country potentially. Yeah, but, but I like you.
and you're certainly the expert. I just I don't see the Ukrainians are not going to accept that. So that's where we're that's where we're at at the moment. Um, Isabel, I can't thank you enough for this. I mean, it's uh, you know it's not the kind of uh, podcast I do uh, weekly, but the people at least who listen to this, I think, are just going to be fascinated by um, your reporting and what's going on there. And uh, and I'm really glad to hear at least you're in a place where you're. Uh, it's we're sort of weird to say the word, but fairly safe or safe, even though obviously there's a war going on. Again, follow Isabel Kashidian's work in the Washington Post. Um, if you subscribe to that newspaper, which uh, is a phenomenal newspaper, uh, you could obviously just uh, go to where their world section is or their Ukraine section is. You'll see her byline. Follow her on Twitter or Instagram um, as well. Usually. Um, I am not. I've 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 sworn off Twitter for the moment, Isabel. You'd be proud of me, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, but if you had, but I did I did for the purposes of this research, I did head to your account, and she she will always tweet out sort of what her she is doing and her uh, colleagues are doing, and again, like some of the reporting that uh, the Washington Post has done is just uh, um, it's really been extraordinary, and I love the piece that you uh, you did when you when you. Um, was it was it your grandmother or great grandmother that you uh, met in Odessa? Uh, it is my grandfather's sister, so my great grandfather's sister. I'm sorry, right? And just like it was a, re- I'm glad the post let you write that because it was sort of a real personal reflection, and also gave um, it gave people a sense of just like that piece was phenomenal to me because through her, I really understood like the Russians are in trouble here. Like the the these people are not gonna sort of let their country be taken without a fight. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate the work you've been doing. And, um, and again, if you want to follow this bell's work, just head to either her Twitter page, uh, Instagram page, or, uh, if you subscribe to the post, which you should, um, check her workout there. Isabel, uh, stay safe. I hope, uh, it'd be okay if I checked, uh, with you, let's say, uh, a couple months down the road. Um, and just to get, do an update. Uh, on this for my listeners, I have no i no way I have no idea where where you will be, but uh, but but I'd like to do that, and uh, and I think people would be interested. But until then, please stay safe, and thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thank you. I will definitely come back anytime. I have a big love for all sports media. Um, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> I get more texts from my uh, hockey colleagues than anybody else, which means a lot to me. Um, but yeah, I, I hope I will still be here, but it will be peacetime. Uh, so yeah, happy to come on. We all hope for that. Thanks, Isabel. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. Uh, my thanks to Isabel. Uh, one, just for agreeing to do this and uh, setting this up with me. She um, you know, goes without saying that there's a lot on her plate right now. But uh, but I really appreciate just her her talking to our listeners and providing insight and obviously we hope for uh for her to be safe she's doing just incredibly important work that is going on um that really obviously impacts the entire world the um there's no really great segue for this but the previous podcast which obviously are much more mundane compared to that subject uh, taylor rooks of bleach report uh on a number of different topics that was a great conversation and cnbc reporter alex sherman on what's going to be the future of ESPN in terms of potential spinoffs from Disney and um, and what ESPN is ultimately going to do when it comes to going direct to consumer. Prior to that, ESPN's Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe on the NCAA tournament. Before that, TJ Quinn of ESPN are covering Brittany Griner uh, in Russia, a sort of link or parallel to this podcast. Bomani Jones and Jeff Perlman, Brian Curtis of The Ringer, the state of the Canadian sports media, head to uh, the Richard Deitch uh, or Sports Media with Richard Deitch uh, page on iTunes or Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen to this stuff. Uh, leave us a five-star review if you like it, and a nice note, that's how this podcast continues. want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody Cadence 13 for their support, and thank you. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.